Well, good evening. Thanks for that reading, Chris. Uh, we're starting this series, as you've heard, and we're looking at this first of three Reformation slogans, Sola Scriptura or Scripture Alone. So let me pray for us as uh, we dig into these two passages together tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom to gather together like this, to sit under your word together, to hear you speak directly to us through your word as your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds. And we ask tonight that you might challenge us afresh about the authority of your word to us and you might help us to respond rightly to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in June of 1519, less than two years after Luther had nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, he headed off to Leipzig um, to debate one of the leading Roman Catholic theologians of the day, a a man named Johann Eck. Now, it wasn't a trial at this stage, although that would come later, but it was a public debate about the ideas that Luther had been bringing forward for about 18 months or so. And it was a debate where Luther, of course, wanted to get to the Bible and talk about the authority of the Bible. But Eck very cleverly uh, made the debate focus on the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. You might imagine he figured it would be easier to debate uh, Luther about that rather than argue about verses in the Bible. Um, And Eck accused Luther of advocating the views of John Huss. He was a a pre-reformer, if you like, a hundred years earlier, who had said very similar things to Luther but who had been brought before a council and had been condemned as a heretic because he doubted the authority of the Pope and the church councils, and he was eventually burned at the stake. And as Luther um, considered the arguments that were being put to him, he was forced to acknowledge that many of Huss's views were right and that he was proposing similar things. And in admitting as much, Luther was aligning himself, you see, with someone that the Catholic Church had deemed to be a heretic. And so Eck had cleverly steered the debate onto the church's authority that Luther was trying to reform. If you like, Luther had been painted into a corner. It was now the church's authority versus what he understood of the Bible. He had a choice to make. He had to choose one of them because of the situation he was placed in. And of course, he chose scripture. You see, as Eck had pressed him and continued to press him about Luther's assertion that church councils can be wrong, that they're not the ultimate authority, but God's word is, Luther eventually answered him this way. I answer that God once spoke through the mouth of an ass. I'll tell you straight what I think. I'm a Christian theologian and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth of my blood and my death. I believe freely and will be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university or pope. And with that declaration, the authority of church tradition was shattered for many people. You see, this is the meaning of sola scriptura, or the scriptures alone, one of the key slogans of the Reformation. It doesn't mean that other things can't inform our theology, that the experiences that we go through in our life don't shape how we read the Bible, or our reasoning that God gives us uh, through the brains he's blessed us with or let alone the traditions that we grow up in in the church. Sure, all of those things will provide some background, some informing of our views. But the point is this. If ever it comes to a question of what is the greatest authority, 
Scripture alone must always be the ultimate authority. So this raises a question, I guess, for some people. Uh, This was Luther's stance, but the question is, why can Scripture bear such weight? You know, the crux of our big question for today is, why is the Bible our ultimate authority in all matters of faith and conduct? Well, we're going to consider that question through looking at those two passages that were read for us from 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. And that brings me to the first answer to that question. Why is the Bible the ultimate authority and not any other human authority or church tradition or whatever it might be? The answer is firstly, because the Bible alone is inspired. The Bible alone is inspired. So notice again what's recorded in 2 Timothy 3, just verses 16 and 17 for the moment. The Apostle Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is a really well-known section uh, in the Bible. Uh, We're going to unpack it as we go through tonight. But for the moment, just notice the first phrase in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. You know, through the centuries, this verse has played a central role in Christians' understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. You know, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy at this point. Timothy's a young pastor at the church in Ephesus. Paul's been encouraging Timothy to preach the gospel in chapters 3 and 4 of his letter to him. And one of the reasons that Timothy can be fully assured that preaching and teaching the Bible which is centered on the gospel, is profitable, is useful, is going to make an impact, is, as Paul says, because this message comes from God. It's not a man-made message. It's not from humans. So notice the word for scripture here in verse 16. It's literally just the word writing. uh, But within within the context of the New Testament and here in 2 Timothy also, it's always a technical term that's referring to the holy writings of the Bible. So at this point here, it's referring to all of the Old Testament that has already existed, but it's also referring to some parts of the New Testament. Some of the New Testament letters were already being written in the first century and circulated amongst the churches. And they were included too in what Paul saw as scripture. But I guess the important point is that all of scripture, he's saying, is God-breathed. So we can't pick and choose the bits we like. We can't say, you know, I'll trust what Jesus says, especially if I've got a red-letter Bible, but I'm not so keen about what Paul says, or I don't like what Isaiah said, but, you know, I like this other prophet. Um, All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. But what does that mean? I mean, that's the key phrase, isn't it? God-breathed. It's key to the understanding that these writings are inspired. What it's saying literally is that God's word has been breathed out or exhaled by God. Uh, The the Greek word is literally spirited out. That is, it's been inspired by God's spirit. Now, the phrase here doesn't tell us the manner in which, you know, the Bible was written down. How does it work with the human writing it and God inspiring them? But what is the focus here in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that God is the source of the writings. He's not man-made. And so Paul's asserting here that the entirety of Scripture comes directly, as it were, from the mouth of God. To read it is to hear God speak to us, to communicate with us directly. And it's therefore true and should be applied in our lives. We can trust it in all that we do. But what about that question of the human authors? You know, doesn't that muddy the waters, some would say? 
Well, that's where that other passage we read from 2 Peter 1 comes in. Have a look at that passage again as we consider what the Apostle Peter says. And here we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in the dark place. Jumping down to verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that opening uh, little section there, the word of the prophets, uh, that's a catch-all phrase that's used in the Bible that refers to the whole of the Old Testament. As the prophets have spoken, uh, is kind of a summary of all that was under the Old Covenant. And Peter's argument here in this chapter is that not only was the word of the prophets made more certain by Christ's life, him coming and fulfilling many of the things it said, but he said in the very first place, the origin of these prophecies was not man-made in the Old Testament. It's the inspired word of God. For example, uh, to put it crassly, you know, Isaiah didn't just get out of the bed one morning and say, you know, I think I'll write down some prophecies today. I feel like I'm in the peak of my powers. No, instead, what we're being told here is the prophets were gripped by God as he spoke to them and gave them a message to communicate to others. Notice how Peter balances the human authorship in verse 21. Men spoke with God's authorship from God. Even though he's aware this is not a partnership of equals, but rather that the humans were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as he said. See, this is very similar to 2 Timothy 3.16. Peter's affirming that scripture is God-breathed, that God controls what is recorded in the words of the Bible. And he does that through the work of the Holy Spirit superintending or overseeing, if you like, the humans who are writing down those words, who are simply the instruments that God uses. Now, that's not to say that uh, the individuals that write don't bring their own background and their personalities to the writings. We see such a range of styles in the Bible as we read through it. And God certainly allows and uses all that the person brings, but he ensures that what is recorded and what we have written down is his word alone and not just the ideas of a person, as it were. They've been carried along, Peter says, or borne along or led by the Holy Spirit so that what we have is God's word to us. Well, how can we apply that a bit more fully to ourselves today? How do we think about that? I think we're forced to think about how we know what we know. How can you be sure of God and your relationship with him? You need to ask yourself questions like, is my faith in Jesus founded on the trustworthy basis of the scriptures? Or have I just trusted in Jesus because some person told me or I trusted them, someone that was close to me? Have I examined for myself what it says about trusting in Jesus, that my salvation is by faith alone, as we've already heard? See, if we do believe that, then the next question is, do we read the Bible as God's inspired word to us? Those kind of questions, you know, focus in on our attitude to Scripture our desire to read scripture. Now, Christians are called to believe that the Bible has full authority for everything, all matters of faith and conduct in their lives. But sadly today, many people, even those who claim to be Christian at times, have the loosest of views when it comes to inspiration. You know, they'll define it in the way people use in everyday language, like, oh, that artist was really inspired when they did that work. Um, it's not that kind of inspiration. I read it and, wow, it's got some nice 
turns of phrase there in the Bible, or it's very poetic. Um, Now, if we reduce it to that, then the Bible just becomes a purely human document. And I might take it or leave it. It might impress me or not impress me, but I don't view it, if that's my level of understanding of inspiration, as God's word to me. But I put it to you, there's an even more subtle and more damaging view of God's word that um, gets around in our society today. And this is the view that God somehow accommodated himself to the human authors. You know, humans are flawed. You and I, we make mistakes, we fail, we sin. So surely, by God just using humans to write it down, it's, it's got to have errors in the Bible. You know, when I come to it, I can't be fully sure because, well, you know, there's bits of Paul in here and Paul had his bad days, this kind of outlook. Or people will say, well, maybe they wrote it down correctly originally from God. But, you know, down over the last 20 centuries... People have modified it and changed it. We're not quite sure we've got the original thing, and so you can't fully trust the Bible. Maybe it's got flaws and errors. How does that kind of opinion get popularity? Well, it's, it's one that's been pushed for centuries, I must say, and refuted for centuries. I think it's become really popular again in the last few years. Uh, think of The Da Vinci Code, uh, that novel that came out in 2003 by Dan Brown. It was very popular. When I say very popular, it sold 60 million copies. It was translated into 44 languages and then followed the film three years later in 2006 starring Tom Hanks. That was the number two film that year. It made $750 million. That's a lot of negative influence about I can't trust the Bible. So lots of people are happy. They're looking for a conspiracy theory if they're not believers and think, yeah, I've always doubted the Bible because... If I'm to accept that the Bible's true, then it's going to challenge my life. So I'd really like to dismiss it. And if somebody like Dan Brown says, I don't really need to trust it, well, I'll latch onto that. And of course, that had a lot of impact, I think, in our society. Now, what was in the novel? Why was it so negative about the Bible? Well, it claimed that Jesus um, was married. He was married to Mary Magdalene, apparently. Um, and at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Jesus was upgraded from just mortal prophet to the son of God, as we now know him. And the fact that we don't see um, Jesus lacking any divinity in the pages of the New Testament, which might indicate that change that they made, is because, well, Constantine, who was the Roman emperor of the day, commissioned a new Bible to be written to remove all the bits that show Jesus just being immortal like everyone else and to show him in this new light as the son of God. Well, you can imagine that... um, that gives you a pretty low view of scripture if you take hold of such beliefs. I've got to say those conspiracy theories don't actually hold water for any serious historian in the world today, whether Christian or not. Now, let me give you just two quick reasons why all of that's a whole lot of rubbish. Now, the first is this. Um, if people before 325 AD thought Jesus was not divine, then we would find that in all their writings. We have so many writings from that period. All the early church fathers have hundreds of documents that they've written about their thinking at that time and not one of them viewed Jesus in that light all of the early church fathers understood him to be the son of God just as the apostles had secondly the council of Nicaea didn't meet uh, to upgrade Jesus from a mortal prophet to the son of God the purpose of the council of Nicaea was to work out a bit more of the trinity it was to argue how do we understand the relationship between God the son and God the father 
And therefore, um, the Emperor Constantine didn't commission a new Bible because there was no need to. There was no change in understanding or opinion on Jesus. And in fact, there's not a shred of evidence that any Bible was ever commissioned by Emperor Constantine. So I think as Christians, we've got to understand and know some of this history so that we realize that we're really on strong ground. This is one of the strongest areas for Christian apologetics. We've got a very firm history, many documents, including many copies of the New Testament and Old, that refute these kind of weak um, arguments that people throw up at times just to dismiss the Bible. I want you to have the confidence, if you're a believer tonight, that it's understandable that the word of God, if it truly is his word, is true because God doesn't lie. And by nature, he cannot utter a falsehood. And so if these are his words, as scripture claims, that the Holy Spirit has superintended in the writing of every author, then what we have in the final product that is the Bible is a Bible without error. There is no problem with the Bible. We can stake our life on it, as Luther and many others have down through the last 20 centuries. You see, the Bible is not just like any other book. Um, you know, Bible is just comes from the Greek word biblos, which is book. But we don't just call it book. We call it the Holy Bible because it's a distinct, a set-apart, separate book. It's the Holy Book because it's God's Word. Other books were just given for our information. Take it or leave it. I don't need to stake my life on it at all. But the Bible was given for my transformation, and it is God's word to you and I that will reshape our lives as we come and sit under it. Well, that brings me to a second point. Uh, Point two. If we're going to answer this question of why is the Bible the ultimate authority on all of life, then the second answer is not only is it inspired, but it alone is authoritative on salvation and sanctification. That is a person coming to faith and a person continuing to grow in their walk with Jesus. So have a look again, 2 Timothy 3, from verse 14 this time. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice firstly here, first of two things that the Bible does for us. Verse 15, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. That is, all you need to know about how to be in a right relationship with God is provided for you in God's word. And how you come to faith is to place your trust in Jesus. Now, as I said, the Holy Scriptures that um, Paul is writing about here were largely, in their minds at this point in history, the Old Testament, with a few New Testament letters that were now being added. And so you can see even from that that they saw all of the Old Testament finding its fulfillment in Christ, the one that you need to place your trust in. The Gospels are the fulfillment of all God's plans of salvation as they unfold through the Bible. And what that means, too, is that salvation is the central goal of the scriptures. As we read the Bible from one end to the other, from Genesis to Revelation, it's about God bringing sinners back into a right relationship with himself, that God has made people in his image and he desires to be in a right relationship with them. And so this is the purpose in his word that he has given to us, that we may know how to come back to him. And so that's why Paul is saying to Timothy, look, 
as a pastor at Ephesus, what you need to be doing is teaching the Bible that centers on the gospel. You need to teach the scriptures because it's these that will make people wise for salvation. Here is the work of evangelism that Timothy is to do as a pastor in part. He's to instruct people on how to be saved through faith in Jesus. And so we don't need to look to any other authorities. This was a huge thing, as we've already heard in Luther's day, that there was the question of whether the Bible was enough or I needed to add some other things that the church tradition told me I needed to do. But as we read 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, we're told the Bible is sufficient. It's all about the Bible fully preparing us, fully able to make us wise for salvation. We don't need anything else because the Bible alone is sufficient. Secondly, notice that the Bible not only informs you how to be saved by faith in Jesus, but it also then helps you to grow in godliness as a believer. Once I start, how do I keep going? The answer is the same. Read God's word to you. It will train you. It will rebuke you. It will correct you. Verse 16, those four verbs there of the value of the Bible and its way that it will shape us. And ultimately in verse 17, therefore equipping us for good works. I think verse 16 is one of those most well-known verses that many people have learnt as a memory verse. But I don't know if you've found over the years, you, you get those four terms in verse 16 and you think, is it just sounding repetitive? Um, what are those things relating to? Is he saying the same thing twice? Because there's two sets of two there, did you notice? Two sets of two. The first two terms are about right doctrine or theory, if you like. The second two terms are about right behavior or practice. And so what Paul is saying is that the Bible instructs us on true doctrine and it rebukes heretical ideas and then it corrects improper behavior and also trains us in the right way to live. It's both a positive and a negative for both, both a training and a correcting aspect to both our beliefs and our actions. Now, that makes sense again, isn't it? There's, the logic is simple. If, if this is God's word to us, and as I read these pages, I hear God speak to me directly, then it will be the benchmark. It will set out what I need to do to come to faith and to live for him. It's his inspired word. And therefore, as Paul says, it's useful. It's profitable. We need to study it. And all of this helps us to be equipped to do good works in verse 17. Did you notice that? It's kind of a little tack on the end sometimes as we read it, but it's actually the purpose of verse 16. Why am I being trained and growing in godliness? Is godliness just an end in itself, or does it lead to something? Well, verse 17, it leads to service. I'm to serve God and his people. I'm equipped in every way as I study God's word to live for him. You see, the logic of this whole section is this. If scripture is from God and it's true, and it contains the content of belief, the guidelines for my conduct, then I'll be enabled to do good works, to live in a way that pleases God. Now, he doesn't list off what those good works here are in verse 17, but throughout 1 and 2 Timothy, there are lots of different examples. There's so many in various ways that we may serve God and serve others. But the point here, again, is the sufficiency of Scripture, the completeness of our preparation. It's saying if you're growing in godliness as you study the Bible, then you're fully equipped to do all that God has for ahead for you, to serve him fully with your life. Those good works are simply going to flow out of your godly character that have been shaped by the Bible. Well, how do we apply all that? Uh, let me wrap up as we think about this second point. 
what I want us to think now is the hardest bit, and that is the rivals that we have to the authority of the Bible. You say, yeah, look, maybe you've grown up in the church and you've known all those things since you were five or six. Yes, the Bible's true. I believe I've got to live by it. But then there's a challenge to us because as we're surrounded in this society by other authorities that come in, there's the question of whether we'll still hold to the Bible as our top authority. So what are those other challenges? Well, the challenge, as you've heard already in Martin Luther's day, at the time of the Reformation, the main challenge was tradition. You know, church traditions held sway. Uh, the traditions that were very influential in the day that really upset Luther was this insistence on things like purgatory, that there's this halfway house to heaven that you go to because Christ's death for you is not enough, and so he hasn't fully paid for your debt, so you need to go to purgatory, and that you'll then go through to heaven if enough people pray for you, or better still, if people give some money to the church, and that will speed up that debt payment and you'll more quickly go through to heaven. Well, that was a very powerful influential tradition in the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. But as you read the pages of the Bible, you just won't find it. It's not biblical, but it is a tradition that was powerful. And so um, one of the major theses in his 95 points that he had was about indulgences. There are other church traditions too of the day that were important, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, which they still hold to today. And yet as we read the scriptures, we find that there are only two that are affirmed by Jesus, being baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we could go on and on about other church traditions that were powerful in that day. But what I want to say to you is church tradition can be a rival authority to the Bible. Indeed, to this day, the Roman Catholic Church holds that the Bible and church authority are equal. And so you not only need to listen to what we read in the words of Scripture, but we need to listen to the Pope and what he teaches. Well, what happens when push comes to shove? What if there's a difference and they disagree? Who then do I listen to? Well, of course, Luther's answer is, well, you listen to the Bible. You shouldn't be listening to church tradition. Wherever church tradition departs from the Bible, it's unhelpful. It's taking you away from the gospel of grace. Now, I don't think church tradition is the big issue today. I think it's lessened greatly in the last 500 years, certainly in Protestant churches. I mean, it's been Protestant churches are a big reaction against such tradition. And so we can often pride ourselves on, no, we just follow the Bible. We don't have church traditions. Be careful with that. Um, every church has its traditions, whether they're written down or enforced on others or not. And so we've got to be careful that we don't have our own pet things that we hold to that are not found in the Bible. But having said that, I think tradition has lessened as a rival. I think the twin sacred cows of today are human reason and human experience. So let me take those in turn. On the issue of human reason, it works this way. If people are not convinced of something logically or they feel that there's no scientific proof for it, then they'll often reject it out of hand. And so if you come to the Bible and you read that the Bible has miracles in it and you believe this is unreasonable, that this is not logical, that this could not have happened, then what you do is you just dismiss the Bible outright rather than read the eyewitness accounts and think through the questions that are being raised. If you think the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, is also just too hard to believe, is not reasonable, then again, you dismiss the Bible rather than read the eyewitnesses' accounts, 
rather than consider the empty tomb, rather to go back and look at the original documents and think hard through the question. Now, that's for those who want to just find fault with the Bible. And that's been going on since the time of Christ. It's not a new thing. It's been happening for 2,000 years. But I think it's a much greater rival to the Bible's authority today than ever. And it doesn't just stop non-believers coming to faith. It often leads to those who say they are Christian rejecting parts of the Bible. And this happens when they put reason over above Scripture. And that's when you call the church has become liberal or liberalism enters, when the Bible is subjected to our so-called superior reason or logic. Maybe if you don't follow that, let me give you an example. Um, Dan Reefmother was one of the pastors in our church here, and he's moved down to Bega and is serving faithfully down there, which is great. Um, but he's been part of some ministers' gatherings in Goulburn and Canberra areas over the last couple of years. And as he's gone to some of those gatherings, he's come across a number of pastors who don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's a bit of a shock as you talk with people that are entrusted with teaching the Bible. And I remember him relaying one of those discussions to me and how he asked one of these guys who was telling him this, well, what do you you know, preach on then at Easter? Ah, the man said, well, we just talk about how Jesus is a good moral man and he provides an example of a sacrificial life to us. You see the problem of when reason trumps the Bible and we throw out the bits that we don't think are comfortable or logical? We have to see always that scripture alone is our ultimate authority, not our finite minds. What about the issue of experience? Here's the last rival. I'd argue this is the greatest rival today. It is the greatest rival to the Bible's authority. Think about it this way. Personal preference, personal experience is everything nowadays. It's often held up, isn't it, as the arbiter of moral questions even. This is why our politicians, our society find it such a struggle to debate something like abortion or euthanasia because it's just your view versus my view. There's no ultimate authority that we can stand on. But what I feel most vehemently is the thing I'm going to put forward and we'll argue about who feels the most about this question and then we'll try and make a decision. It's fraught with problems, as you can see. Michael Reeves and Tim Chester write in their book Why the Reformation Still Matters This. Ethical issues are decided on the basis of the personal stories that elicit the most sympathy. Individual dilemmas are determined on the basis of a person's feelings. Any sense that right and wrong may be rooted in divine revelation has been replaced by subjectivity. Now, I want to say to you that the church is not immune to this cultural trend either. It's big in church circles too. You know, many people today are desperate to hear the voice of God, for example. And so they become obsessed at times with personal prophecies or dreams or words of knowledge. Now, without dismissing these things, which God may grant at times, they're desperately seeking a direct communication from God. And yet day by day, if they're reading their Bible, God is speaking to them through his word And he's speaking through the preaching of his word Sunday by Sunday at church. I think the problem at times where we're looking for other authorities or other words apart from the Bible is because we're not perhaps happy with what we are reading in the Bible or it's challenging something in our life. And perhaps that word 
that comes from elsewhere will allow me to circumvent this idea of taking up my cross daily. The life of living as a Christian is hard. It involves suffering, and that's not a really welcome discussion. And so people want a word that justifies perhaps their desire for self-fulfillment or their sense of self-importance. God is speaking to us day by day, moment by moment, as we read his word to us. You see, the Reformers didn't simply believe that the Bible was true. They believed that the Bible was the ultimate authority and that you subjected everything else to the Bible. That's what it means to have Scripture alone as your authority. And I think it's a challenge we've got to hear afresh. Now, don't get me wrong. People will be informed by traditions. We're surrounded by them. People will be informed by their life experiences. We can't help but be. I am too. People will always be influenced by their reasoning and thinking about topics and questions. God has given us the brains that he's given that we might think hard about his word. All of these things are valuable gifts of God at one level or another. But whenever they become something that trumps the Bible, then we're in great danger. And it'll always be on those hardest questions where we're not comfortable about something that we'll find some other source that says what we like so that we might relegate the Bible to second place. We can't have rival authorities to God's word. And whenever we make traditional reason or experience a rival authority, we're in trouble. The Bible should always trump things. I think we have to see today again, which the reformers understood so clearly, that the living Christ, the risen Christ, rules his church through his word as we read it, as we hear it taught, and that this is the greatest authority that God has granted us. Now, that should mean to us not only that we hold the Bible in great esteem, but that we actually find it precious. You know, in a day and age where we can have 10 versions of the Bible on our phone and 100 versions sitting on the shelf at home, we take it for granted. 500 years ago, people were forced to listen to somebody else explain it to them in Latin, and they had no clue whether they were being taught the truth or not. We have a great gift to us. And so often, though, we leave it aside, or we find reading the Bible as a duty. You know, do you ever find yourself reading it? Look, it's happened to me too, where you're reading a scripture and your mind's off elsewhere. You're writing the shopping list that you've got to go and do next. You're thinking about the thing that has to happen at work tomorrow. Um, you're worrying about your child or your spouse or something else that's about to happen or happened yesterday. We can find ourselves distracted and just going through the motions. Rather than longing and loving God's word, we're just sort of uh, ticking a box and we feel like we need to do it. We realize it's important, but we don't savor it. I think we've got to recapture that as well. We've not only got to be sure of its authority, which will drive us to read it, but we need to long to hear God speak to us as only he can through his word. I want to leave you with the words of King David in Psalm 19, verse 10. He has a beautiful description of this. He writes in Psalm 19, The decrees of the Lord are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. If you've done any church, um, any history generally and read about Australia in the 1850s and the search for gold and the craziness of people that would kill one another just to get to a plot where they might get gold, think of the search for gold 
And then think out whether you search the scriptures as much as somebody devours territory looking for gold. Think about how much we put food on a great pedestal today. We have show after show, master chef, whatever, and we want to savor every drop and how everything is done beautifully. People, for good reason, love their food. They savor the sweet things like honey. Let me ask you, do you savor God's word as much as you do the next meal. Jesus said, a man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We've got it in front of us. The question is whether we trust it, whether we love it, whether we read it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift that is Scripture. For you have revealed yourself to us in it. Otherwise, we would be in the dark. And yet you are a speaking God who continues to speak through your word, which is living and active. It judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Help us this day, we pray, to be challenged afresh that we need to trust your word fully that we might be able to affirm the, affirm the truth of Scripture alone, that it alone is our ultimate authority on all matters of faith and conduct, and that we may live in the light of that. Help us, too, to long for your word, to savor it, to desire to hear you speak as we come to it day by day, as we hear it taught and read. Help us, we ask, this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.